The title of today's sermon is Entering a Technicolor New World. It's taken from Matthew 10, verses 16 through 23. Father, we're so grateful that we have the sun in our lives, that he brings warmth to us. We pray, Father, as we go through this section of Scripture this morning in Matthew, that we will be reminded of your goodness to us, of your plan for us. Help us to see the bigger picture now, we would ask, through the Holy Spirit's guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. As many of you know, one of my favorite, my favorite movie of all time is The Wizard of Oz. Now, there are many reasons that I made that choice, but I'd like to share one more with you this morning. As you know, there's a well-known scene at the beginning of the film in which the Gale farmhouse is swooped up from Kansas and transported to the land of Oz. There it is unceremoniously plopped down to Dorothy's wonder in a new place. She gets up off her bed and she walks to the front door and... Let's watch. Lights. Oh! Oh! Wait for it. Dorothy is immersed in a septia-toned world in Kansas, a dreadful life. Her homestead is the Gale Farm, surrounded by dull, dead landscape in Kansas. I know, because I lived there once. However, the world is shattered when her house is suddenly lifted up its, off its foundations and whisked away to another place. After minutes of twisting and turning in the sky, she's suddenly deposited it on solid ground and, of course, unsure of where she is at. Is it Jewel? Is it Wichita? Perhaps Salina? Unknowingly, she makes her way to the front door and opens it, and she now enters into a technicolor world called Oz. As you've just seen, she opens the door, And Oz is in beautiful colors. A three-color process of colorization was used to reveal the glory of Oz, of Dorothy's brilliantly colored blue gingham dress. She has stepped out of black and white and into technicolor. Can you imagine the visual awe of the moviegoer in 1939 to see this? The movie storyteller uses color to change from one world to a new and fascinating one. He uses human perception of the eye gate to achieve this movement from one place to another. Unfortunately, Jesus didn't have any film technicians to help him convey his message of moving from one world to another. So he settled on on word pictures to do it. He masterfully transports the reader the listener, if you will, from one place to another, from the first century to a place that has yet to come about in time and space. 
The reason he did this is quite simple. As the king of Israel, he was preparing the Jewish believers for the terrible persecution that they would need to suffer through in the tribulation. I trust, you'll recall, if you were here with us last week, that Jesus had just been giving his marching orders, his instructions to the twelve, for they had a special task in Matthew 10 to take the kingdom gospel, the good news that the king was here to the people of Israel. We watched the king give instructions to his subjects last week, and we quit in the middle of those instructions. Today, we pick up with those instructions of Jesus to his kingdom workers. He tutored them, first of all, as you'll recall, in the message that they were to carry to Israel. The king wanted his subjects to know that he was here and for them to embrace him. And if they would not, there would be consequences for the nation of Israel. So the Lord sent out the twelve to the towns of Israel. He did so in order to warn the folks that if they rejected the message, they would bring judgment upon themselves. These next few verses that we cover today will flow naturally out of those initial instructions given last week. So, the sent ones must prepare themselves as they take the message to Israel for persecution from both family, friend, and neighbor. Let let me remind you, that it's not unusual for the scriptures and the writers of the scriptures to jump from one time period to another. And they do so without any explanation. This happens not only in the teaching of the Old Testament, uh, but also here as Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 10. He looks down the corridor of time and he sees a place when faithful Jewish believers will endure great and terrible things done against them in the Great Tribulation. So, so then, this text does not necessarily apply directly to the Twelve as he sends them out. And this is so for several reasons. The first is, you'll recall, that they were instructed to take their message to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. Secondly, The Holy Spirit has not yet come and indwelled believers as they would at Pentecost, as he would at Pentecost. Therefore, the Spirit of God, as we shall see, could not speak through them until that time. Finally, there's no evidence anywhere that the twelve suffered such persecution during this ministry that Jesus sends them out on. On the contrary, the other synoptic writers... Mark and Luke, tell us they experienced a very successful ministry. Well, with that as our introduction, would you turn with me to our text, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. We can find this text on page 967 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Here again, we find ourselves with Jesus giving his instructions to the twelve. Jesus' instructions to the twelve. We read in verse 16, Jesus says to them, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Here he begins a warning to the twelve. He uses that word behold. Some of your translations might have therefore. But the idea is therefore is the same. To be careful. Now don't miss this. Jesus is telling his disciples that they need to Go out with their eyes wide open that they will suffer because they will be amongst the wolves. 
Um, the Jews had in the past been attacked by uh, people. They'd been attacked, Jewish, the Jewish believers, and Jesus had been attacked by the Gentile kings like Herod. They'd been attacked by others like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as you know. So there was this general attitude within Israel that anyone who bore the message that was different than that which was preached at the temple would suffer attack. So we must understand in our thinking that these men going out into the nation of Israel had in their minds that they could be attacked by their fellow citizens. Secondly, we have to have clearly within our minds that this set of instructions given by Jesus is to the twelve and not to the church. This has absolutely no application today to the church. Therefore, these instructions should not be considered timeless truths. Now, that's not to say that some of the things that Jesus says are not applicable today to missionaries, for example. Um, But it would be speaking more towards their own spiritual lives rather than the way that they conduct their ministries. So, Jesus warns them. As he continues to instruct them, he says that they are to avoid trouble as they minister to the Jews in Israel. Jesus describes them as like sheep in the midst of wolves. Wolves are vicious animals. They travel in packs and they attack anything that they can eat. Now, it's not politically correct, I don't think, for Jesus to compare his opponents to wolves. This would be directly applicable to the religious leaders of the day. Wow, what's going on out there? Did they hear we don't have any heat? Are they coming to rescue us? I doubt it. His opponents, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, would not have liked this description of themselves as being wolves. A wolf, as you can see behind me, is a vicious attacker. Maybe your mind's eye could conjure up the picture of Harvey Weinstein being alone with a 20-year-old girl. You can almost visualize him chasing down this defenseless starlet in a darkened room and doing what he wants. There was supposed to be no sound with this. You will recognize... There you go. You can see the wolf attacking the sheep there. Sheep are totally defenseless against these wolves. You can see their vicious teeth as they come to you and they rip the throat open to kill their victim. Jesus is comparing those that attack the twelve in much the same way. He's sending his kingdom workers into the midst of a terrible enemy where they knock them down and destroy them. But again, let me say this to make it clear. There is no record in the Bible or in secular literature where this occurred to the twelve as they went out on this mission. You can stop the video, please. So, we're going to have to see how this is applicable in, in just a few minutes. But the twelve went out on their assignment and they never suffered the attacks that Jesus is speaking of here. So the Lord is describing what I would consider the character of kingdom workers. He says that they must be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Now the Lord uses vivid word pictures. He uses uh, examples from the animal kingdom. We've seen the wolf, 
Now here we see uh, snakes and doves. He's applying these pictures from the animal kingdom to human beings. This is a grammatical device, if you want to know. It's called a, a zoomorphism. His workers are to be shrewd and innocent like these animals, all at the very same time. Shrewd, as you might have guessed, uh, carries the idea of understanding that which is the result of insight and wisdom, while innocent means without a mixture of evil or being pure and untainted. That's kind of how I think of my grandkids. Right after they're born, they're pure and they're untainted. So the kingdom worker of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he goes out and carries the message of the Jewish king is present, couldn't they do this at 11.30 or 12? They're to be characterized by wisdom and purity in their lives. They're not to fall into the ways of the world. Matthew describes the character of the Lord's workers using these animals to drive home the point to an agrarian society. They knew what wolves were. They often experienced them in the wild as they attacked their sheep. They knew what serpents were. They would walk along through the desert regions of Israel and they'd see one off in the, in the brush or maybe even attacked by one. They knew that snakes were very clever. Now, most Bible believers and scholars believe that Matthew here is using some well-known proverbs of the day in Israel. That could be, I don't know. But we know that his readers would have been familiar with all of these animals. So they spoke, these, these examples spoke to them. But modern readers, like you and me, are, are not as used to being involved with the critters around us. So maybe coyotes and roaming cats. But they were experienced firsthand with these animals. And they, they could really picture them in their own mind's eye. So Jesus says they are to be shrewd and innocent as they proclaim the kingdom message that the kingdom is here. These two qualities, however, must be held in balance. Next, in verse 17, the twelve are warned by Jesus to beware of men. First it's wolves, now he directly applies it to them. Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you. Where? In the synagogues. Who is their enemy then, really? Is it wolves? Is it men? Well, I would suggest to you that it's really not. They're the perpetrators, but there's something behind uh, those men. The real enemy is the evil one. The devil uses people to attack God's kingdom workers. So this warning to beware of men because they are like wolves that will attack you to destroy you are mimicking the example of their own father. And who is their father? The devil. And the devil is the father of all lies and he's a murderer from the very beginning. So in essence, these men that they are to be aware of are useful idiots they will be in position of powers within the government, within the, the religious structure of Israel. They will be tools of the evil one. Does this sound very familiar to you at all? Vaguely familiar to you at all? Yeah. Jesus warns his kingdom workers to be on guard, be shrewd, be innocent, and now he says to be on guard for the misuse of the 
councils and the court systems within Israel. As you know, each and every Jewish city had elders who ruled at the town gate. That was where the courts were held. They functioned uh, by ruling on the cases that, brought, that were brought to them. They were also the administrators of the town that approved or disapproved of all the events that would take place in the civic square of the town. These local courts or councils decided all of the important issues of the day, both religious and civic. So, for most Jews, their life revolved around the decisions of these elders of the town. Their religious practices were ruled over by these councils or courts in the local synagogue. However, if they lived near Jerusalem, then the center focus of their lives was, of course, the temple. But for those outside of walking distance of uh, Jerusalem, the synagogue was the natural location for all of these things to take place. One more thing that I want to point out to you before I move on is that the word there that, said, that is in your Bible as courts or councils is plural. So it encompasses all of the synagogues and the temple in Jerusalem. You'll recall it was the Sanhedrin, the body of 72, that ruled in Jesus' case and committed him to the crucifixion by the Romans. Well, the first thing that they did to Jesus before they crucified him was, of course, they scourged him. And that's mentioned here by Christ, to be on guard, for they will scourge you. That is, they will be flogged. That's the word that we're more familiar with today. In ancient Israel, when a person was flogged, he received 39 lashes, one less than 40. And the first 13 lashes were applied to the front of the body, and the last 26 would be applied to the back. We read of Jesus being flogged. We read of Paul being flogged. In 2 Corinthians, he writes from his own personal experience, I was flogged five times, receiving 39 lashes each time from the Jews. Can you imagine that? That's a total of 195 lashes on his body. If you're a kingdom worker, Jesus says, beware. You will receive flogging. You will be scourged. You see, you can't go out and share the king's message and not suffer for it. You'll either be beaten or killed. Jesus advises them to be wise as serpents and innocents of dove. Do not be guilty of any wrongdoing. Do not give them an excuse to do this to you. In verse 18, he tells them, stay focused on your task. Stay focused on what the king has called you to do. We read there in verse 18, you will be even brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to the Gentiles. Here we go. Something's going on here in this text. He's sending them out to the Jews only, but now within the midst of his instructions, he's saying, you will be sent to the governors and kings for my sake to Gentiles. So the 12 are instructed to go to Israel alone. But somewhere along the line, kingdom workers will stand before Gentile kings and governors and be judged. Now, as I said, there's no record of this happening to the 12 as they ministered to Israel during this time period. So let me suggest you what Jesus is doing is he's looking at two mountain peaks at the very same time, as many prophets did. And he's morphing these two views of these two mountain peaks into one. It's sort of like when... Dorothy moves from black and white 
in her farmhouse to the seamless color of Oz. As she opened the door, the color began. Jesus is opening the door to the color of a future time that is anticipated in the Old Testament and will come to fulfillment in a time that has not yet taken place. That is when the king returns a second time to institute his kingdom over Israel in what we call the millennial period. Preceding that, though, is a time of hell on earth in which the Jewish people will be persecuted like never before, called the tribulation. You and I don't live in that time period. You and I live in the interim. We live in the age of grace. We live in the church age. The Jewish people have temporarily been set aside by Christ because they rejected him, they crucified him, and now we live in the church age. But there is a time coming in the future when God again will pick up his program to the Jews. And all Israel, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, will be saved. But until that time, the Jews will suffer, but they will never suffer as they suffer in the tribulation period. And so, they will stand before governors and kings. Of course, this suggests a wider um, distribution of the message than just what the twelve were doing at this time. So, we know that Israel, at that time being ruled by Romans, uh, by the Romans, who placed governors over the territories of what was then called the region of Palestine. These despots were appointed by Rome, and they were either regents or they were governors that were given power. We're familiar with the Herod family. They were appointed by Rome and given the title of kings or perfects, and they ruled over places like Galilee, Patria, Samaria, Decapolis, Iteria, Idudium, uh, or Galantis. We're familiar with some of those names, um, and we're familiar with some of the other Gentile kings that ruled over the land because they're found in the book of Acts. If you've ever read the book of Acts, you'll recognize the names Agrippa I, Felix, Festus, love that name, Agrippa II, Sergius Paulus, and Galea. Jesus was tried by several of these Gentile governors, just as the apostles would be brought before them later on in the first century. So we see this trail of Gentiles that will persecute the Jews as they take the gospel message of the church age across the world. But they do so in that age for his name's sake. The kingdom worker that Jesus is talking to, the 12 that he's sending out to Israel and later the 70, will not suffer such persecution as, as I've mentioned several times. There is no record in the Bible or in secular literature of the people whom Jesus is directly speaking to here of ever suffering. So this message must be to future kingdom workers in the tribulation period. This fits well with what the Bible teaches in other places. For example, in a book I just recently finished teaching on, the book of Daniel in chapter 9, we read this beginning in verse 26. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That brings us 62 weeks, seven years each week, to the time period from Daniel's life and ministry to Jesus' death. Will be cut off, he's dead, and nothing. And the people of the prince, that's the evil one who is to come, 
will destroy the city and sanctuary. Now we've just jumped over thousands of years in this text to the tribulation period. The prince who is to come. Who do we call the prince who is to come? The beast, the antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary and it will end with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war and desolations. Clearly, this is speaking of the same period in which Jesus is now moved into. It follows his death, and of course, there's the parenthesis of the church age, which is just skipped over, it's not even mentioned. It predicts the destruction again of the city of Jerusalem and the temple, not 70 AD, but in the period of the tribulation. Today, the Jews are in the land. They're fully vested there. They are waiting for this future event to take place. It has yet to happen. They are waiting for that destruction, that flood, that war, that desolation that's going to come upon them. And Daniel talks about that, doesn't he? He says that he, that is the devil, will make a firm covenant with the many, that is Israel, for one week, seven years. One year equals one every year equals seven or a week, but in the middle of that week, that's three and a half years, he will put a stop to the sacrifices and the grain offerings, that's at the temple, and on the wing of abominations will come and make desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. The Antichrist is going to try to destroy the people of Israel, so that they do not in turn, that they do not in mass turn to Jesus Christ. That cannot be any other time than what we call the tribulation period. It's predicted both in the Old and the New Testaments. Here in Daniel 9 and in Revelation up to chapter 21. So, we read of this future destruction of Israel during the tribulation period. But we live in the church age. We're waiting for something to happen. Our great hope is not the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the rapture in which he calls us from the air to join him and to leave him and join with him in his heavenly abode as we await his return to destroy the devil and his workers, and finally institute his reign on earth. Cryptically, we find this in Jeremiah chapter 30, where the prophet Jeremiah writes and warns Israel about this same time period Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 10, and he will again pick up with in Matthew 24 and 25 called the Olivet Discourse. He says, now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel, not the church, concerning Judah, For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Wow. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth, and and all the faces have turned pale? This is descriptive of what is called the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. It precedes immediately Jesus Christ's return to earth to rule over it. Then that is followed by the second coming and the millennial period of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is well documented, as I said, in the Old Testament, 
in Daniel 7, 12, and then picked up within the book of Revelation, and some within 1 Thessalonians. So we find it throughout the Bible. And then two crucial verses from Daniel chapter 12 tell us, now at that time, future, at that time, sometime in the future, Michael, the great prince, which stands over the sons of your people, that is Israel, will arise and there will be a time of distress that has never occurred before on earth. That's the tribulation. Since there was a, uh, any time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. All Israel will be saved. These to everlasting life, but others to contempt and everlasting disgrace. Zechariah continues that same theme, the topic of the tribulation that Jesus is speaking about again here in Matthew 10 and again in Matthew 24 and 25. He says, this is the speaking for the Lord, a day is coming and I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured and the houses plundered. You getting a theme here? The women ravished and half the city will be exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. That's the end of the tribulation. And as he fights on that day of battle, his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olive, which, Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley, so half the mountain will be moved towards the north and the other half towards the south. The Lord Jesus will return. He will touch down on the Mount of Olives and put an end to the tribulation. So what we see here is the Lord speaking to the 12, 12 men that he's sending out on this task of spreading the message that the kingdom of God is here. Embrace the king. Receive him now. And avoid all of this other foolishness that lies ahead. And he melds from that time period to the time period of the tribulation when 144,000 Jewish witnesses will be sealed, that had been sealed, will be revealed, and they will take this same message, this same mission of the 12 as recorded here to that future millions of Jews in Israel. The kingdom is here. Embrace the king. They'll have a lot more reason to do it then. It won't just be the Roman legion oppressing them. It will be the false prophet. It will be the the beast. It will be the antichrist that will bring hell on earth to the Jews until the breaking point in which they will embrace Jesus. The Lord warns his kingdom workers at that time to beware, to be watching for the signs of his coming. They will be given a great opportunity that we learn here to be a witness for his sake. This is to the Jewish people, not the church. The church has been removed. It's gone. The Lord seals 144,000 Jews to be witnesses during the tribulation, not Christians. And they bring the same message that John the Baptist and Jesus brought. Not repent. Remember we talked about that last week. It's the kingdom of God is here. Isn't that awesome? I love the way the Bible just fits together so nicely. Now at that time, 
These 144,000 and those who are converted to Christ will come under great pressure. Great persecution. That's what Jesus is describing here. They will be cut off of all their Facebook accounts. Can you imagine that persecution? No Twitter! Oh my goodness. They will be hunted down like the prey of a wolf and killed. And in verse 19 we read, They will hand you over. Do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. They'll be hunted down and they will stand in the dock before potentates as they proclaim the message that Jesus Christ is king. Not Jesus Christ is Savior, Jesus Christ is King, and He's going to reign over the earth, and He's going to rule over Israel. Now, some have taken this verse in the church totally out of context. They've ripped it out of its context and make it say something that God never intended it to say. They apply it to the church age until, instead of who it's really to be applied to, that is, to those being persecuted during the tribulation. They say, okay, I don't need to prepare for a sermon on Sunday morning. I just need to open up my mouth and trust the Lord that he's going to fill it with a message. Well, I think that does violence to the text. It's not what the writer is saying at all. In verse 20, the Lord instructs the twelve, For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Believe me, I studied before I came and stood in this pulpit this morning. J. Vernon McGee, a fellow Dallas Seminary graduate and the former church of, pastor of the Church of the Open Door in L.A., wrote this in his commentary. Of course, he's gone now. He's with the Lord. He said, I believe these verses have a direct application to those men who had no opportunity to prepare answers when they were arrested for proclaiming Jesus. Unfortunately, there are many folk today who apply these verses to themselves, and therefore they make no preparation for their sermons. When I was at Dallas Seminary, as a a fellow student who was a little odd in more ways than one, believed that he should preach without preparation. A friend and I decided one night that we would go and hear him preach. Well, it was painfully obviously that he had not prepared his message. And so on the way back to seminary, my friend, who had even more gall than I had, asked him, Did you prepare that message tonight? Of course I didn't. Well, how did you get it? The Spirit of God gave it to me. And my friend said to him, I don't think you ought to blame that message on the Spirit of God. He said, I had another friend at Temple, Texas, who was standing on the train station, and he was running through his notes as he was waiting for his train to go preach at another town on a Sunday morning. As he waited for his connection, he was walking up and down with his notes in his hands, and he was practicing what he was going to preach that Sunday morning. He was wearing a long frock coat, apparently that identified preachers. And another man approached him who was wearing a frock coat as well. And the man asked him, Are you a preacher? Yes. Well, what are you doing there? I'm going over my notes for the sermon this morning. Do you mean to tell me that you prepare your sermons? Yes. Don't you? No! I just get up there and let the Holy Spirit speak through me. Well, suppose you get up there and the Holy Spirit doesn't give you a message. Then what do you do? Oh, I just mess around until he does. (laughs) 
McGee says, unfortunately, there are a whole lot of preachers just messing around today and using this as an excuse that the Lord gave him the words. You see, this is really a misinterpretation of the text. The context here is of those suffering persecution, arrested by governors and kings, brought before them for trial, and the Lord will speak through them. Now, there are a couple of questions about this text that we need to to discuss before I move on. That is, there's some tricky wording used in here that sometimes throws people for a loop. Loop. They often ask me, what does this mean? The question, first question concerns the meaning of the spirit of your father. What does that mean, speaking through you? Who is this referring to? Is this referring to the Holy Spirit? Or is this referring to the father and his spirit? I believe that Jesus is doing something here that is done throughout the New Testament. There's a linkage of the Godhead. Remember, there are three personalities, but they're all one. So it's not unusual for them to be linked together in this way. For example, in Romans 8, verse 11, we read, If the spirit of him, that is Jesus, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he raised Jesus from the dead will also give you life in your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there's this linkage here of the spirit and Jesus Christ doing the same work. Paul does that same thing again in 2 Corinthians, saying, The Lord is the Spirit where the Spirit is, the Lord is. Then in Galatians 4, Paul says, Because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. So you see that there's this fluidity between the persons of the Godhead that we really don't fully understand or grasp. But all three members of the Trinity the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, participate in the ministry of redemption of all of mankind. Is it warmer in here now? A little bit? So the Lord warns his future kingdom workers that they will have a great price to pay during the tribulation. They will be persecuted. They will be hunted down. They will be handed over to the authorities. They will be handed over to those in religious places and in governmental positions, and they will be dealt with severely. This persecution will also come from another source, from the family, from friends and from your family. We read of this in verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death and father of his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Wow. It will take a radical commitment by the 144,000 others saved during that time to preach the message that the king is here, that the kingdom has arrived during the tribulation. And this commitment must supersede any commitment to their family because in Jewish culture, the family was paramount above all other loyalties. But in the days to come, family will have to be put aside, and the message must have priority. The choice of the kingdom worker will be to proclaim the truth despite persecution that comes from religious sources, from governmental sources, and even from their own family. And in verse 22, Jesus says to them, either endure it or relocate. We read in verse 22, you will be hated all 
because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Another one of those verses that causes so much conflict within the church. The Calvinist wants to take this and rip it out of its context, being spoken to kingdom workers during the tribulation, and apply to the church age. If you remain good little boys and girls in the church and you stop your sinning and endure to the very end, then you will be saved. That's what they say. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, there is nothing that you can do that can separate you from the love of Christ. It's not you that saves you. It's Jesus Christ's death on the cross that saves you. If you're trusting in your experience, if you're trusting in your obedience, you are trusting in the wrong object of faith. What, you run out of amens on that one? Gee. Jesus is speaking to the twelve. He's not speaking to the church. The church hasn't even been a thought on anybody's mind. It's still a mystery. How could he be telling Christians to endure to the end? It's just pure silliness. It's illogical. It makes no sense. He then morphs into speaking to the future Jewish kingdom workers in a future time when he says, endure to the end. He's talking about them going through persecution. If you endure, you'll live through it, right into the millennial kingdom. Right? That's what he's saying, I think. Anyone who remains faithful during this time and doesn't get killed will make it into my kingdom. He says the exact same thing in the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24 and verse 13. So what the question is, what is the end here? What is the end speaking of? Well, Jesus tells us clearly. The context says it's the coming of the Son of Man. So we know this cannot refer to the rapture. It's referring to his second coming. It has to be. It's not his first coming, is it? Jesus is standing there saying this. It couldn't be his first coming because he was born 30 years before this in Bethlehem, right? That was his first advent. So this coming of the Son of Man must be his second advent. That's descriptive of what the end is. It's anticipating the return of Jesus at the end of the tribulation period. And anyone who endures to that time will then just seamlessly move into the millennial kingdom without having to be resurrected at the end of that seven years. Now, the Greek word helps us here. It is hymeneo, and it describes, the, it is the word endure in English. It describes the one who resists by holding his ground and is not moved. So the kingdom workers are to hold their ground. They're not to be moved as they preach the kingdom message that Jesus Christ is at hand. He's coming. He's going to reign here in just a short period of time. Now Jesus says, if you preach that message, you will be hated. You will be hated. They will be persecuted. They will be scourged. They will be rejected by family. They will be hunted down by authorities, both civil and religious. And they are to remain faithful to Christ and endure to the end. 
As I said, these tribulation witnesses are described for us in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. There we learn 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses are going to be there, right? Right? You see how the cults twist and turn, turn everything. 144,000 Jews, men and women, will carry the gospel of the kingdom message to the Jews in Israel. At that time, the Jewish people will in mass, as I've said from Romans chapter 10, will turn to Christ and embrace him as the Messiah King, not the Savior Lord that we talk about in the church age. John the Relevator, I'll get that yet, John the Relevator writes in chapter 7, of the book of Revelation. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun, having the seal of the living God, and he carried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees to which we have been sealed, the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There you go. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. And so on and so forth. Clearly, this is not the church age, is it? Because all the tribes of Israel are lost, save two. This is not about preserving to the natural end of your life or the end of the church age. This is about a time to come. Salvation is not about enduring to the end. It's about trusting in your Savior and believing that he's given you eternal security. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We are in the hand of the Savior who is in the hand of the Father who keeps us. Roman Catholicism teaches and Reformed Calvinists teach that you can lose your salvation. You will stand before God and give a final accounting. It's called final justification. In the Roman Catholic Church, it's go to purgatory. But for people like, and let me name them for you, N.T. Wright, David Platt, A.L. Moeller, J.I. Packer, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Timothy Keller, John Piper, David Wells, Mark Driscoll, Mark Chandler, Francis Chan, and Michael Horton, and there's a host of others. They assert that we will stand before God at this final judgment and give an account of our good works. And if we fall short, we go to hell. Is that what you believe? I do not believe that. I believe you're saved by grace alone. I believe that you're saved by Christ alone. That he's given us his promise, his guarantee. For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Who am I to stand before God and say, I did this, I did that for you, I suffered for you, I did that. Jesus suffered more than I'll ever suffer. Good works do not save us. Good works do not keep us. Only the grace of God and the mercy of God can save us eternally. Listen now. Reformed Calvinists and Roman Catholicism both assert that you can never know if you're saved. But Jesus says that we can know for sure. He said, I give to you eternal life and they will never perish. 
No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You are totally secure if you know Christ as your personal Savior. Are you trusting in him? Is he your Savior? I trust he is. He is the only one that can keep us. In this context here, until the end refers to the end of the 70th week of Daniel, the seven years of tribulation, the end will be a terrible time of persecution where the preaching of the kingdom will be received by Israel and they will be saved. That's what Jesus is saying to these kingdom workers. He's morphing from his time frame to another time frame in the future. Some don't agree with this interpretation, that's for sure. Some who want to make man the center of their salvation rather than God see this in a totally different light. But is the kingdom worker being promised eternal salvation? I say no to you. The kingdom worker is already saved. It makes no logical sense. Those 144,000 sealed by God and those who come to know him. Hey, Dan, uh, blah, blah, blah. how are you? Good to see you. Those saved along with them are already believers in Jesus as the Messiah. So they will be saved in the end means they are physically delivered into the millennial kingdom. Not eternally saved. That's already a done deal. Now in verse 23 we read, But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of the world, right? No, what's the, what, what does it say there? of Israel. This is spoken to kingdom workers who are Jewish. It's to the people of Israel. It's talking about a time that is yet to come. It's not talking to Christians in the parenthesis, the church age. Notice that this persecution is certain. And as I said, the twelve never underwent persecution according to all the records that we have during this time of being sent out into Israel. But the 144,000, it's clear that they will be persecuted. And they will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He's already standing there in their midst, so this has to be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean that they will not go through all the towns of Israel? It means that the persecution will be so bad that the Lord Jesus Christ will come before all have a personal visitation by the 144,000. Now, the mission of the 12 was to do the same thing. You know, Israel is 125 miles long by 75 miles wide. It certainly could be done, but the 144,000 will not make it through because the Antichrist persecution will be so bad. In neither case... Will the kingdom's message be received, though, by all? Paul writes to the Roman believers saying this about Israel in chapter 11. If you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated 
olive tree, how much more then will these who are natural branches being grafted into their own olive tree? This speaks of Israel and the church. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. He's talking to us now. I don't want you to be uninformed about this thing that's been hidden so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Don't you think you know it all because you don't, says Paul. Let me tell you something that you cannot possibly know. This is being given to me by God and I'm giving it to you. That a personal hardening that has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The church age, which ends at the rapture. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer, now listen to this, he's quoting from the Old Testament, very, very important. The deliverer will come from Zion. His feet will land on the Mount of Olives, remember? Or leave from the Mount of Olives. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Premillennialists like myself believe this is speaking of the tribulation and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he finishes his program with the Gentiles, he turns back to the Jewish people and he institutes seven years of tribulation and they in mass turn to him. This is when he finishes that program with the Jew. And the deliverer will come. Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives, which is the Mount Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from... Here it is. Who? Who? Who is Jacob? He's Israel. His ungodly nature was Jacob, and when he was turned into a godly man, he became... Israel, their sins will be removed and they will be saved. Isn't that awesome? I love it when black and white turns to color, don't you? Jesus is teaching his disciples, his followers, to live in a technicolor world. You can know what's going to happen. It's been revealed through these word pictures. Let me remind you one more time. For doubters, Jesus is speaking here not to the church. The church has not even been invented yet. He's speaking to Jews under the paradigm of the law, not believers under grace. That dispensation is yet to come. It's still a mystery hidden to be revealed by Paul. He's giving him just giving them just a glimpse of the end times. Though other glimpses were seen in the Old Testament prophets like Zechariah and, and Daniel, now they're just getting a little peek into the future. He presents it like two mountain ranges in the distance and you can't see the valley the church in between. Well, what can we learn from this text? How can we apply this to our lives? First of all, we can learn that all human institutions are flawed and they are a heartbeat away from being taken over by the evil one. All religions, including Judaism, are flawed and fail. All governments are flawed and just a heartbeat away from being taken, away, taken over by the evil one. The three institutions established in the world are government, religion, and 
home. All three will be perverted in the time that is to come, and we're seeing some of that today, are we not? What's under attack today? The church, government, the family. Heck, you're not even supposed to know if you're a male or a female anymore. All i got to do is look at my plumbing and I know what I am. It's insane, is it not? It's insanity. The government thinking they can give everything away for free when it's $20 trillion in debt is insane. Is it not? The promises of religion that you can save yourself, that you can become a god, is insane, is it not? All three religious institutions will fall to the wayside. Jesus says, avoid trouble. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I give you the same, same admonition. Avoid trouble where you can. The baker in Oregon couldn't avoid trouble, could they? The florist in Washington couldn't avoid trouble, could they? Home Depot couldn't avoid, Home Depot, Hobby Lobby couldn't avoid trouble, could they? The government has come upon them and persecuted them. Just a slight glimpse of what is to come in the time ahead. We must possess the character of kingdom workers. We must be shrewd and innocent at the same time. We must be on guard against persecution arising from these three institutions. You ever been persecuted by family? I have been. You're one of the Bible thumpers, aren't you? You're a religious zealot. Who do you follow? You follow that Jerry Farwell guy? My own father said that to me. The government taxing us here in Washington State. Do you know they tax us? Where's the separation of church and state when it comes to taxes? Religion. Don't have any time to go through that. Christians must stay focused and be on guard. And lastly, we must preach with accuracy the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. You cannot appease God by your good works. He offers it only to those who will admit that they are sinners by nature and trust in him and him alone. Confess what? That you're a sinner. Repent of what? Have a change of mind. I cannot save myself. That hasn't worked so far, has it? I must trust in him and him alone, by faith alone. We must take advantage of this opportunity that is afforded to us to go through every town and village in this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that we will suffer persecution from religious entities, from our own family, and from governmental sources. We live in a dark and drab world in some ways, but let me tell you, there is a time coming when Jesus Christ will pierce the sky and we will see in technicolor the wonders of his grace and mercy like never before when we live and dwell with him in the millennial kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that you have shown us 
in bits and pieces the future. Help us, Lord, to understand it, to believe it, to trust in it, and to live our lives in light of it. Help us to live in technicolor, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.